This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 135. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and today I have a very special guest on, first time he's ever been on the podcast with us, and it's for all for a very uh, important and special reason, because he is the expert, as far as I'm concerned, in these matters, which today we're going to be talking about some really deep stuff about the uh, right for self-defense, uh, the right to bear arms. And so I have with me on the podcast today, Dr. Steve Adams. Say hello, sir. Hello. How you thanks doing? For, thanks for having me on. Doing well. Great. Uh, so I'd like to uh, give you a moment here in just a, in just a second to uh, introduce yourself. But first, I'm just going to mention that today's uh, episode is is a special edition. Uh, we're releasing this on July 3rd, just in, ahead of the Independence Day uh, holiday, uh, which is kind of a, a big deal, uh, which is part of the reason why we're talking about the subject that we're, we'll be talking about today uh, as we celebrate our rights and freedoms that we do enjoy in this country and kind of where they all came from. Uh, so I, I, I sincerely hope everyone ha- is having a good time, enjoying your holiday as you're listening to this, uh, kicking back a little bit, you know, eating some good food, enjoying time with family, and remembering those things that are indeed important to us as a nation and as a people. Uh, and I, I hope that you're taking a moment to to ponder those and be thankful for them. So, but first, uh, today's episode is brought to you by Guardian Nation. Uh, I don't have any other sponsors on this episode. We're, we're trying to keep it pretty sponsor-free, but this one is kind of important because it applies to what's going on this week as a special event. Uh, this week, we have a Happy Birthday America sale going on, and to participate in and get full advantage of the sale prices in that sale, you've got to be a member of Guardian Nation. Don't know what Guardian Nation is? Go check it out at Guardian nation.com but members get access to a ton of great online video training they also get access to our monthly guardian nation live broadcast events as well as the archive of past recordings we've had in the past rob latham rob pincus kyle lamb and gary quasenberry a ton of others mike hughes uh, a lot of you know well, well-known, recognized, you know, respected people in the industry uh, that I think viewers of those events have learned a lot. Uh, so anyway, hope that you can take advantage of those as well as you get 10% off of everything sold. This is not talking about this week's sale. This is all the time. Guardian Nation members get access to a 10% off discount. Everything sold at concealedcarry.com and you'll receive a sweet box of shooting gear four times a year worth at least the value of the membership just alone in that gear that we ship out every quarter. So that's just a, just a couple of benefits. But this week, we have our Happy Birthday America sale. Please go check it out. And you have the opportunity to participate in our Guardian Day big time, big deal sale on uh, Friday, July 7th, where we will also be announcing a lucky winner of a brand new custom designed and built and Cerakoted Sig Sauer P320, beautiful gun. Anyway, so that's all I've got as far as sponsors for today. It makes it all possible to produce this podcast. Thanks for listening. Now, I think we're going to try to get into it now with Dr. Adams. And so, sir, if you would just take a moment and tell the listeners who you are, your background, and and uh, well, I guess we'll go from there. 
Well, when you invited me to come on the podcast, I thought maybe there were two parts of my background that the listeners may want to know. One, just kind of professionally, I'm involved in education. I <clears throat> I started in private schools. I've taught in public schools. I've taught from kindergarten through college. I've been a building administrator, helped to start several charter schools in Idaho and Utah. And then I went to Florida and worked as the director for charter virtual and home education in Florida for the Florida Department of Ed while I got my graduate degrees at Florida State. And <clears throat> there I studied history and philosophy of education. And it's it's kind of tied into my background and interest in firearms. When I was very young, uh, my family didn't have anything against guns, particularly. My father had been in the military, and I think military folks end up kind of on two ends of the spectrum. They either love guns or they don't want to be around guns again. And my dad was kind of in that latter category. And I can totally understand that and respect that. And But at the same time, he was a security guard. So he had to be around guns to a certain extent. So he would collect the ammunition he was supposed to be practicing with. And once, probably twice a year, he would take us as kids out to the range and teach us how to shoot. <clears throat> then I remember watching him do his speed reloader drills. And I thought that was fascinating. Uh, to watch as a kid, but he taught me correct, um, correct processes of shooting and respect for firearms and safety. And I always appreciated that. And then when I turned 12, I, I bought a gun and I've been buying them ever since and just really enjoy the sport. I've done a lot with boy scouts. And, uh, when the NRA required us to get trained to stay working with the boy scouts, I did that and enjoyed it. And now I'm a training counselor with the NRA and, teach private classes, concealed carry classes mostly, but um, in other, other other areas as well. But I have a strong interest in, in history and how guns and education kind of intersect and how we have drifted away from that and the problems that's creating in society. And I'm happy to talk to you today. Yeah, it's... Well, we're happy to have you on and talking with, with me as well and uh, providing really a lot of valuable education to our listeners through this podcast. Um, kind of where the idea for today's episode came from was a few months ago, uh, Jacob and I, uh, you know, folks uh, here obviously know Jacob, we were traveling over to Utah. Uh, we had the opportunity to go do a tour of the Silencer Co. Uh, facility over there. And we had a couple other, you know, business things that, that we had going on as well. And during that, we, we had the opportunity to meet up with you. It was kind of a last minute thing, I think, for you. Like you, <laughs> you, you actually live in Idaho, but we were down in Utah. You do quite a bit of business in Utah. You teach courses for us you know, within our instructor network there in Utah. And uh, yeah, I think we were having dinner and maybe some ice cream or something with some other uh, friends and, and instructors. Uh, and you're like, hey, I'm coming down. <laughs> and so you, you drove, what, four hours-ish? Uh, you come down. Uh, we had some ice cream together. We had a good time, you know, just chatting, get to know each other. And then you and I, you gave me a ride back to my hotel, uh, which was about 20 or 30 minutes north uh, from where we were. And uh, the, that whole time driving together, we were talking uh, quite a bit of it about some of the, the studying and, you know, research that you've done about self-defense and the right to bear arms and, you know, talking a little bit about the divine right of kings and, you know, 
John Locke's second treatise on government, <laughs> you know, and all this stuff. And like my mind was kind of, uh, number one, I love all of that stuff very much. Um, very passionate about it. You know, you start talking about John Locke and I, I, I start feeling like I'm back in high school again. Uh, I was a debater in high school, uh, Lincoln Douglas debate. I don't know if anyone else out there even cares or even knows what that means, but I read quite a bit of, of John Locke and, and others. Uh, so it was a fascinating conversation I had with you. And from that, I said, dude, like we've got to do this as a podcast episode, specifically like right, maybe right around Independence Day, because we're going to be talking about rights and liberties and freedoms and, uh, you know, which are basic human rights, really at the core of it, which, I mean, that's what we should be celebrating at Independence Day. So here we are finally able to connect. Uh, thank you for your time today. Uh, I think we should probably, you know, start getting into it. Um, so I'm, cu- I'm curious. First, oh, first kudos, kudos to your high school for actually teaching. I mean, if you're studying John Locke in high school, you're doing really well. The university where I'm working right now, I'm, I struggled getting them to cover John Locke in an American history class. So kudos sure. to them. Sure. Well, you know, it was, it was a lot of it was self-driven because uh, in my debate class, you know, it was like, okay, here's all these books, you know, and I, I was given very little uh, direction. It was just read all this stuff. And I'll tell you, I read a lot of things that I definitely didn't agree with. I read a lot of other things that I did agree with. I, I read a lot of other things that were somewhere in the middle. And, you know, that formed a lot of my thought and opinions that I still hold to this day. Uh, you know, so I, 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 you know, like I said, I read a lot of different things. Uh, it was, yes, kudos to the school for, I guess, even having that available. <laughs> At least they had it in the library. <laughs> right. But uh, anyway, uh, John Locke was one that, you know, you, you start talking about like the, the state of nature, the law of nature, uh, which is kind of a, a real, you know, big theme of his, uh, particularly in his second treatise. And uh, uh, that's that's stuff I remember, you know, going back, you know, 20 years-ish, uh, maybe a little bit less. Yeah, that was kind of a big deal for me. I remember reading that for the first time and like, wow, like it it it, it really sunk in with me and resonated with me. Well, let's start with John Locke then, because he is directly tied in to Independence Day, um, very directly. And John Locke is fascinating to me, not just because he talked about natural law and he made really good arguments, but because he was incredibly well-respected in Britain. His arguments were held in high esteem. Um, And so let's talk a little bit about why. We have this time period that we refer to a lot of times as the Dark Ages, and some scholars get upset because we call it the Dark Ages, but intellectually and in a lot of other ways, it was a dark time. And part of the problem during this time was a lot of the governments were denying the right of self-defense. They were stating things like they had the divine right of kings, meaning that somehow God had appointed them to be stewards over all the earth. They they would take that language out of the Old Testament and somehow claim it was in reference to them as king and that they had control not only of all the things in their kingdom, but the people, including the lives of the people. And if they did not grant you, if they did not give to you the right of self-defense, you did not possess it. And it's kind of clear in in a kingdom, you can kind of guess who would have 
the divine, you know, who would be delegated the right of self-defense. It would be the other nobles. It would be, you know, those who have sworn allegiance to the king. And if you, you know, in the movies, you see a, a commoner who is elevated into nobility through knighthood. They're, you know, tapped on each shoulder with the sword and they are entered into the, the order of becoming a knight. And part of the delegation of authority in that order is the right of self-defense. And so this idea of self-defense had been around for a long time in history and some governments actually respected it and others didn't. And this time in Europe during the dark ages, it mostly was not respected and the, the commoners were at the mercy of the nobility. Well, as the enlightenment began and books and history became more accessible, mainly to the middle class with the printing press, you now have people like John Locke who are studying these issues. And before you only had the, um, the religious leaders that would read the Bible and they would read it to the people in languages they didn't understand, Latin and Greek. And, and then the people would ask, you know, their priest, well, is this really, is there really a divine right of Kings? And what's the priest going to say? You know, the, if they say, well, no, then the King would kill them and or remove them. And, so everything was dependent upon the king. And so John Locke is reading and studying, and he cannot find anywhere a, a, a reasonable definition for the, or a defense of the divine right of kings. So mm -hmm. he uh, steps forward. There were other people who had also argued this, but very few that were willing to do it aggressively because of the, what the king would do to him. But he wrote something called the first treatise on civil government. And this first treatise was an argument disproving the divine right of kings and basically declaring it to be utter nonsense and laying out that, according to the Bible, all individuals were sovereign, all individuals had rights by nature that were given to them. The founders would later refer to this as um, that the rights were given by nature or nature's God and that every individual held their own rights and was sovereign. And this was hugely against what the king was doing. And he fled the country and lived in, I think it was the Netherlands. But the people in England began to embrace those writings. And it led to what's referred to as the glorious revolution in Britain, the, the restoration or creation of the constitutional monarchy, um, the reinstatement of their, uh, more, more democratic processes. And those writings were brought over to the colonies in America. Oh, well, I guess I didn't get to the second treatise. So because he just threw out the entire governing structure for all of Europe, he felt a moral responsibility to talk about what government could be and should be. And he wrote the second treatise on civil government, which is what he's most famous for, where he outlined how a free people where each individual is sovereign can be governed and should be governed, respecting the rights of the people. And that was and is the framework for our constitutional republic. Right. Uh, you can so understand uh, why John Locke was such a threat to uh, the, the king at that time, because he's literally, he, he I mean, such insubordination. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> your authority is null and, you know, invalid. Like, 
you do not have uh, this this divine right, this this authority that you so claim. Uh, that really, I mean, at the core of it of John Locke's beliefs was that uh, that that right, that authority resides in man, in in the in the people. Uh, there's a there's a quote. Uh, I believe this is from the second treatise that uh, I, I just really. I got. I, I have to read this quote because, for me, it establishes so much that is going to be, you know, that we're going to be, you know, covering from from the rest of, or throughout the rest of this episode. And uh, he says this in the second treatise on civil government: uh, If man in the state of nature be so free as has been said, if he be absolute lord of his own person and possessions, equal to the greatest and subject to no body. Why will he part with his freedom? Why will he give up this empire and subject himself to the dominion and control of any other power? To which it is obvious to answer that though in the state of nature he hath such a right, yet the enjoyment of it is very uncertain and certain, and constantly exposed to the invasion of others. For all being kings as much as he, every man his equal and the greater part no strict observer observers of equity and justice. The enjoyment of the property he has in this state is very unsafe, very unsecure. This makes him willing to quit a condition which, however free, is full of fears and continual dangers, and it is not without reason that he seeks out and is willing to join in society with others who are already united or have a mind to unite. For the mutual mutual preservation of their lives liberties, and estates, which I call, by the general name, property. Mm. Ooh, I'm getting like chills yeah. reading that, by the yeah. way, right now. Locke is actually incredibly fun to, to get into when you talk about property and modern arguments about capitalism and stuff like that. But this idea of, of joining in concert in society, of having government as a choice of the people to better protect their rights through collaboration, that is the basic structure of a civil society, of a, of a government, of a free people. And the, the very idea that you would establish a government to protect your rights by first giving up your guns or your ability to defend yourself to that state is utterly ludicrous. <laughs> and yet it's argued all the time. Right. Because the, the government will protect us, right? Well, and it's such a ridiculous idea that we are the government. The free people are the government. And there's another awesome thing we could talk about, which are the deli- the distribution of powers and the, the checks and balances in our Constitution. We always think about them just being, you know, the separation of the different governmental bodies, the executive, the judicial, the legislative. But there were also other separations of powers. And that was really apparent in the military the military in our constitution separated the powers between the federal, the state, and the individual. And they separated armaments between the federal, the state, and the individual. It was a brilliant design, and the Second Amendment was just a piece of that. It was just a clarification that you, you shall not infringe the right of an individual to keep and bear arms, partly because the most powerful military force in this country was meant to be by design the people and it, it's lost in modern um, 
discourse and education because we don't study the writings of the founders as much as we should. And when we do, we we nitpick it and then we talk about how they were, you know, we, we want to make them look like bad people and, and just ignore what they had to say. But that was a brilliant uh, distribution of powers in the Constitution that left the military power, the largest military power in the hands of the people. Right. Um, so w- let's come back to that. Yeah, sorry, uh, I got to the, that was the conclusion. We're done. <laughs> so that's great. <laughs> but, uh, you know, from what I just quoted from the second treatise, something, you know what stands out to me from that? Well, there's a couple of things, but one of the first things that really stands out to me is this quote that for all being kings as much as he, every man his equal. To me, that suggests that in in this in this ideal, we we each one of us is a king, right? Which which is a different, completely different uh, belief than what they had at this time. This is what. 17 or excuse me, 16, late sixteen, yeah, like 1680, 1690, somewhere in that ballpark. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, at that time, the King is this divine, you know, person appointed and, and has all this right and authority. But John Locke was saying, we are all Kings and we are all equals. And then, and, 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 and so in theory, I have all this authority over my own domain and I could only be concerned about that. And, you know, life would probably be really short and really miserable because I'd be fighting my neighbor who would be fighting their neighbor. Like, we'd all be just, like, fighting each other because, you know, trying to be kings of over our own uh, uh, kingdoms. Which is uh, and, the state of nature. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what we're, what we're establishing here. But then what we do by, by nature, because we want to survive – and we want to prolong our seed and whatever else, uh, and we'd like to enjoy life too, I think, we we enter into, and it, you know, he doesn't say it out right here, but there's this idea of a social contract, right? And that social contract says, okay, let's unite. Let's come together for the preservation of you and me and all of our property, and property is used very loosely in the, in this uh, instance, you know, where he suggests, where John Locke suggests, lives, liberties, and estates are property. And so, out of which are this, which are an extension of our right to life, right, right. So the right to life, the right to happiness, those are all extent. You know, property is right in there amongst those because the fruits of our labor, which is our life, is our property. So they're all tied inseparably. Yes, exactly. And so for the first time ever, <laughs> that, that, that well, maybe not ever, ever, but like we, we have this divine, I, I think it's divine. I think it's inspired. I, I think that, you know, I, this is not meant to be a religious necessarily or a political po- podcast, although today is going to be a little bit more political than other days. But uh, I, I really believe we have this constitution that is, I think that's a divine document. I don't necessarily think that our, our leaders, uh, our president, you know, is, you know, has this same sort of, you know, divine right, if you will, uh, that the kings used to have. Although sometimes you have people that would suggest that's the way it ought to be, right? <laughs> Even today, you know, uh, but uh, but we have this, con- this document that established these concepts, freedom, you know, for our lives, uh, our estates, our property, 
and and also you know the ability to defend such. Yep. So take it. You take know, it I, from there. I tell my class when I when I, I do I cover this in all my concealed carry classes because I don't I don't enjoy teaching the skills of of firing a gun and using a gun in self defense unless they my students can understand the foundations and and what this stuff is that I think is really important. So I talked to him about a story where a lady was carrying concealed in Walmart. She had her gun in her purse. She left her purse and her toddler in the stroller. The toddler pulled out the gun, pointed at his mom and pulled the trigger and killed her. And so I talked to my class about this and what went wrong. And it allows for a lot of teaching about, you know, securing your firearm and keeping it on your person and taking responsibility for your firearms, even if they're not on you at a given time. So it, it, it gets into things about whether you should carry around in the chamber and whether you should have a safety. And so we talk about a lot of things with it. And then I close the conversation by saying, how can we stop accidents like that from happening? And inevitably it will come down to the point where you can't stop all accidents. You can minimize them dramatically through good education and safe gun practices, but human beings will create accidents. And we don't control each other either. And some people choose not to follow safe gun handling practices. And that's part of a free society. It's kind of messy. It's kind of dirty. And so I say, well, then kind of devil advocate approach. How do we stop all gun accidents? All of them. And somebody will figure out where I'm going with it. And they'll say, well, we have to get rid of all the guns. Great. All right. So how do we get rid of all guns? And this, and this gets into an interesting conversation about whether you could ever get rid of the guns in the United States of America, because by design, this country is flooded with firearms. That was the design of the founders. And I mean, the only people who would, would turn them in would kind of be the sheeple that don't know anything. You're still going to have the people who are illegally possessing them now. Plus you're going to create a whole new breed of illegal people who are still possessing them because they believe in things like I do. <laughs> and it, and it gets us into a conversation about, can you have freedom with pure security? Could we, if you're going to, if we're going to live in a free society, there will always be problems because free people are not perfect. And then we could also get into the arguments about, well, if you have government take over our security, will we ever be secure either? I mean, they, they like to make arguments that we would be, but we wouldn't be. And so I, I love getting into those conversations and talking about what it means to be a free people, what rights we possess as a free people, and what responsibilities that brings upon each of us. Right. You, what you were just saying there reminds me of uh, the famous Benjamin Franklin quote, and it's clear that he understood that very well, where he said, those who, those who, how's it go? Those who surrender freedom for security will not have, nor do they deserve either one. Is that right? And we're in the middle of those arguments as a people all the time, and especially about guns. I and mean, you look at, look at the difference in the political atmosphere before the last election. I mean, we were, we were a step away from a total re and misinterpretation of the second amendment by the Supreme court. Absolutely. And we're in a different world now where we actually get to keep the Second Amendment for a little while. And it's just the world is interesting. Yeah, I think I talked about that more than more than a few times, even on the podcast about, you know, Trump, love him or hate him. 
I, I don't care really which one, but for me, it was a no brainer because I, I knew for sure that having the alternative, uh, I knew what the impact would be on, on our Supreme Court. And instead, we got Trump. And like I said, love him or hate him. You know, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> true, true. Right. There's a lot of uh, negative press uh, going on about him right now. And, and perhaps rightfully so. He brings a lot of it upon himself. But what I do know is that he, you know, appointed. Uh, I guess that's not necessarily the correct word, right? Because I, I think it's actually. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You know, uh, a conservative justice to fill the seat left open by, you know, when uh, uh, Scalia passed away. And, and it seems that, like thus far that when it, where it pertains to the second amendment, that, that, that proved out to be a good, a good absolutely. choice. I hope that remains true. Absolutely. So, you know, that was a big deal to me. That, that was really all the election for me was about was gotta have, you know, the right person taking the seat of, of Antonin Scalia. Because the alternative would not be pretty. We, we would be seeing a lot of uh, rulings on court cases and laws that were brought before, th- before the Supreme Court that would change the face of this country and change the meaning of the Second Amendment uh, to something that we would have a hard time recognizing. Then we'd have to be talking about the difference between a legal right and a moral right, where <laughs> the law may not recognize the right but the right exists before the law, before government. Therefore, are we going to exercise the right and put ourselves at conflict with the law, the civil law? Yeah. And that, that was a huge question for our founders. Let, let me finish off the, the tie-in between John Locke and our Independence Day. Absolutely. Uh, so John Locke in the second treatise on civil government, he really did a good job outlining uh, a governmental structure. Other people took it even further and the founders were very familiar with these writings. And when it came time for the declaration of independence, they assigned Thomas Jefferson to draft it. Thomas Jefferson was, I, I think most people agree. He was the, the most scholarly of our, of our founders. And he was very familiar with John Locke. Um, well, we could talk about it. I mean, he required it to be studied at the University of Virginia. He just, he, he really understood John Locke. And in drafting the, the declaration, he has these sections where I call them the whereases. You know, because the king did this and because the king did that, mm. we do hereby declare our independence. So these whereases are one at a time arguments directly from the second treatise on civil government. And the rationale for that is that he's writing this declaration to other free Englishmen. So the colonists were supposedly free Englishmen and the Englishmen in Britain were free Englishmen, all respecting John Locke as kind of like we claim we respect Thomas Jefferson. We may not listen to much of what he had to say, but we claim that we respect him. So he wrote to the English people a declaration that they would clearly understand. And if you read John Locke, he states very clearly that if a government becomes tyrannical, it is the right and the responsibility of the people to rebel and replace that government with one that recognizes their free status and sovereignty and full rights. 
And so this was not a fresh argument that the founding fathers made in America. This was something that was very British, very mm -hmm. English. And it was a, a well-crafted, exceptional document. Um, in my studying of philosophers, I put, I mean, you've got um, the greats. I have Aristotle, John Locke, Thomas Jefferson. I mean, these guys were incredibly brilliant. And it took a Jefferson to apply Locke in that brilliant fashion for that Declaration of Independence. So John Locke, and I'm not, I'll, I'll say there are scholars who argue that that's not as clear a connection as I do, but Locke scholars argue it a lot. And, and I went through the second treatise and the Declaration, and I lined up the arguments from the two. So I know they're there. And I think it was very deliberate. I think it was a, a very deliberate move by Thomas Jefferson. Mm. Well, it certainly seems that way. Like you say, if if you were to read a lot of John Locke's reading or writings, and then read the Declaration of Independence or anything that Jefferson wrote, like it, it, there is, it becomes very apparent just how much tie-in there is between you know the two lines of thought. Uh, and, and I like what you were saying. I mean, the the founding fathers. This was not necessarily. They didn't necessarily like invent anything. It, I see it as really like a culmination of a lot of things and a lot of influences from a lot of different sources uh, going back over many hundreds of years. I mean, you kind of started out talking about, you know, these dark ages. Well, from the dark ages, there was a lot of, I would call it, you know, even if people didn't realize it necessarily at the time, pent up frustration of just being, you know, kicked down <laughs> and, 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 you know, they, they didn't, they were not their own people. Like you, you said before they belonged to the King, even their very lives belonged to one man. And, and this, so you see and there were other, there were other contributors. I mean, you have the religious reformation. Mm. One of the earliest writers on self-defense was Samuel Ruff, Rutherford, Rutherford, mm. sorry. Right. And that's mid 1600. So this is pre lock. And he, he was very clear about the right of self-defense being in the people. And so you have religious reformers, you have intellectual reformers in the Enlightenment, and some of these people paid a very heavy price to, to allow – so the, the religious writings were the basis for European law, the Bible, and the people did not have access to those. So the people who translated the Bible into German and English, the people who read it in German and English, they, they could be subject to death by fire. Many of them were. They sacrificed their lives just to read the Bible in their language. And, now, and that allowed them to start expanding their minds to say, wait a minute, this stuff that we've been told by our priests is just not true. And, it, and I think that's even more of the pinup. You know, whenever you, you just instinctively believe something and smart people are telling you you're dumb, and then you find the proof that you were actually right, that can really be infuriating. I mean, it can lead right. to revolution. People can really get upset when that happens. And, I, and that is very much what happened in England. Yeah, Absolutely. So here we have in the mid to late 1700s, we have the government of England, the, the king, who, you know, they begin, 
yeah, and I'll let you maybe elaborate on on a few of those uh, things specifically, but they begin doing some things that the you know Americans uh, definitely do not agree with. Uh, that they you know that really rubs them the wrong way. Uh, you have uh, the Stamp Act is passed. Uh, you have a number of other you know taxes and things uh, you know put into place. And, you know, this really rubs the Americans the, the wrong way. Uh, and before we know it, we find ourselves, you know, it, it, well, we did have the Declaration of Independence that came out, uh, obviously, you know, right there when this, when this all blows up as far as, uh, uh, you know, the, the fighting, the, the uh, independence, uh, the war for independence, the Revolutionary War. Um, but it's not till later when you actually see a lot of the even though I'm sure the thoughts were there, the understanding was there, but we don't see the constitution. We don't see the bill of rights uh, put into their form as what, how they exist today until obviously, you know, the revolutionary war is, is resolved. But basically though, I mean, what I'm saying though is can can you talk a little bit, Dr. Adams to kind of the build up to the revolutionary war, kind of how that gets started and you know, and and how this all fits in, what we've been talking about up to this point, individual rights and so forth, and where that fits into the Revolutionary War. I'll I'll address one aspect of it that I think was really important, and that is that the way the English people resolved the conflict between Locke's arguments and the British crown was to agree to have their parliamentary bodies where the people had a voice in their government, the people had to agree to a tax, the people had to agree to any of these issues that might be seen as an infringement upon their rights that were actually an effort by government to secure their rights. And that's always a conflict with taxation because you're removing the right to property, which is an extension of your right to life as a free person, And you're doing that to allow for the common defense or things that will secure your other rights. And so it's, there is no perfection in absolute rights. You have to, you kind of, you have to have a prioritizing of rights and you have to manage that process. And the way to do that was through these legislative assemblies, the parliament and each colony and their charter had some kind of a legislative body that was representative of the people, or at least the landowners. And these were being uh, squashed by the appointed governors. They were being um, shut down, boarded up. They were having to move to other facilities and act outside of the governor's um, recognition. The governor would not recognize them. The king would not recognize them. And taxes were being passed without their input, which was the whole taxation without representation. And so you have a very clear violation of liberty, as clearly laid down in in John Locke's second treatise. So that was a really important step. And then I think in one of your podcasts, you discussed Lexington and Concord and the actual right to bear arms. Isn't that, am I remembering that right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, it wasn't yours. I feel bad. It's like going on a date and telling somebody about a date you went on and it wasn't them. Um, but I very much enjoyed that that podcast. It 
the the very concept of freedom was tied into these community powder houses and you would keep your powder together um, because it needed certain conditions and the community would come together and house this and the British were coming to confiscate their arms and it started the revolutionary war and one of the arguments against the bill of rights in fact really the only argument against the bill of rights was that the rights were fully understood by all of the people to be natural rights that didn't need to be um, laid down in specificity in the Constitution. And the fear that by naming some of the rights in the Constitution, it would allow people later on to say that, well, because other rights weren't mentioned, they don't really belong to the people. And that was the only argument against the Bill of Rights. Mm. It was, it's a fascinating time when the average American understood these issues of constitutional law and natural rights. And it was well understood at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you're absolutely correct, of course. I mean, yes, a year ago now, Jacob and I did the podcast talking about some of the events that led up to uh, the skirmishes in Lexington and Concord. And that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the, the the British government uh, saw you know these people uh, in the Americas, kind of you know they were not going along with everything that was being passed and forced upon them, uh, and people were fighting back. Fighting back meaning you know sometimes whether it was with uh, uh, you know their intellect, uh, publishing various papers and things. Uh, refusing to, you know, go along with other things. Of course, you had the whole uh, uh, Tea Party uh, or, uh, yeah, the uh, Boston Boston Tea Party. There we go. And, you know, that event and, and you know, all this is going on. And so the British government's trying to clamp down on the people and they confiscate arms, you know, guns in the Boston area in particular, that was a big focus for a lot of things. And Boston's not that far from Lexington and Concord. And at some point they're like, Hey, we hear there's this big stash of powder (laughs) in Lexington. Let's go get it. And they start marching their way up there to get it. And boy, the people were not going to have any of that because like you said, you know, in these people's minds, they're thinking we are free. We are people. We have these natural rights, and now you're going to do something that puts at even greater risk my ability to exercise said rights. And uh, it's so interesting to me how clear the uh, the 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 link was, you know, in their minds, like they. they They understood the consequences of giving up their arms. And so when it became clear that those arms were going to be taken away, the consequence, you know, the the associated result of that is that they would no longer be able to stand up for themselves, that they would no longer be able to stand up for their rights, and and, and they would have a hard time turning that back. So... You know, here we, we we start to get into this. You know, this the the whole Second Amendment. We have the First Amendment, which you know we all know and we all love, uh, freedom of speech and the freedom to to worship uh, in whatever manner that you choose. But then the very very next thing in the Bill of Rights is the ability to 
defend that essentially. Uh, the ability to stand up for all of our other rights, the ability to, to fight back if necessary against the government. I'm not trying to insinuate or, or <laughs> you know, create an, any sort of uprising here you know, in, in what we're saying right now. We're just simply recognizing the fact that based on you know, these great philosophers from the 16 and 1700s, the, the founding fathers, they understood that the rights were they resided with the people that the people were the ones that were in charge and that for that to be possible, the people must be, you know, armed. Like we, the people are the militia and we must be the militia in order to, and that's a very loosely organized militia, right? But well, it, it is, it is now because of, of what we've done to the right. concept but the the idea is a very simple one, and it's a very historic one. It, you cannot be intellectually honest and argue that the American people shouldn't be armed, or that the founders believed that we should have guns for hunting, or that the Second Amendment only covered muskets. That is not intellectually honest. And any historian right. that has read anything knows that's true. The, the, the purpose, not just of the Second Amendment, but the entire Constitution, was to separate out powers, to have checks and balances. And you're, you're talking about a people who see this as their second revolution. They were free Englishmen who fought in, or their, their forefathers, <clears throat> fought in the Glorious Revolution. And it was well established in their culture that you must have arms. The people must have arms in order to hold the government accountable. And they, they fought for that in the Glorious Revolution. Then they brought those arms with them to the colonies. And now, as colonists, as free Englishmen, they must be armed. And one of the sure signs of a tyrannical British monarchy is to separate them from their arms. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. Yep. Because that is a sure sign of tyrannical government. And in today's world, I get a kick out of people where they're, well, and even the NRA did this for a little while, where they're, Oh, well, the Second Amendment is about making sure we have sporting and hunting rifles. And it's not. Yeah. And it's just, it isn't. Whether we want to talk about it or it makes us uncomfortable, it is the truth. It was not about hunting. It was not about sporting arms. It was about the inherent right, the natural right, inalienable, inseparable from us right to hold our government accountable with force if necessary, and that those arms were intended to be superior to a government that was never intended to have a standing army. And we still account for that in our constitution by only funding the federal uh, military for two years. And it was not to flow. The, the federal forces were not to flow directly into the state militias because the governor appointed the officers of the state militia. And we actually had a little problem, if you want to call it that in this country, of a civil war because the militias do report to the governor and not to the, to the president. Right. And in our time, we still have what the, you know, we call militia, our national guard and things like that. They're still appointed by the governors, but we've, we've really kind of lost this idea that, that the power of the people is not just voice. It is actual physical force and that it needs to be, if we are to be a free people, and that's just historically true, whether it makes us uncomfortable or not. Yeah. 
Yeah, we, we've really watered it down, haven't we? Well, and I, I like to use these, and I love Chuck Norris. He's like my favorite dude. <laughs> and But one of the shows that has been incredibly successful at painting a picture in our psyche about civilians not having guns is show, are there shows like Walker, Texas Ranger, where every time a private citizen has a gun, the music's ominous, and <laughs> you know something's just going to go wrong. And, oh, this is terrible. But if, you know, old Walker, Texas Ranger touches his gun, that's awesome. Cool music plays. All is right in the world. And a modern equivalency would be like Hawaii Five O, the new Hawaii Five O. It's the same kind of a thing where if a civilian has a gun, oh, and if a, if a government official has a gun, oh, this is good. This, now it's all going to be okay. That's just, it's just not American. That is not who we are or who we should be. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely see this, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, brainwashing in our society today. That's a good word. Yeah. Well, it's what it is, right? It's this subtle, uh, it's very subtle brainwashing, but that, that is exactly what it is. It's, you know, every opportunity we get in our, you know, dare I say mainstream media, uh, to paint, guns and those with guns in a negative light uh as far as you know regular joe civilian uh they're going to take that opportunity and this is what the children grow up seeing this is what i mean how many adults do we see i mean i'm sure you've instructed steve uh a student before i know i have where they have this this innate fear of of and by innate like it's been planted there from from practically birth of of a gun like all you know yes. you and I we look at a gun and it's a tool and you're like yeah this is what I can do with that tool but there's these people out there that have completely bought in knowingly or unknowingly into this this you know brainwashing <laughs> uh, that this is a scary thing like you know it's going to bite me <laughs> it's going to jump up off the table by itself. You know, it's going to slam home a magazine, rack the slide, and it's going to point at me and all on its own, it's going to pull a trigger and fire and shoot me, you know, like, uh, which yeah, of course, I you just know, saw this ludicrous. the other day. I, I just taught a group. Um, it was just a volunteer thing I did for a group of people here at the university instructors. They were actually kind of instructor management and they came out to the range and we went through safety and we went through, I, they wanted me to do a 15 minute safety briefing and then have them shoot. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't, we've got to at least do an hour and a half and then I'll take you out to the range. And we got, I, I, you can identify who these people are who are just scared of guns. Now there's a difference. I think we should all, and, and I think any responsible gun owner respects the power of a firearm. And there's something different in respecting what that gun was designed to do, what it can do, versus just being afraid of an inanimate object because society conditioned you to be afraid of it. And we got out on the range and some of these individuals who were really afraid of guns had the most enjoyable experience learning to control that firearm and to enjoy the power of that firearm. And, and there is something very enjoyable about that. Taking this little bullet and placing it exactly where you want it to be with the aid of this machine. And it's a fascinating thing that they really enjoyed. 
And they were afraid of, you know, the larger caliber and they got them to the 22 and got them worked up to the bigger one. And they loved it. It's, it only took a couple of hours to recondition them from a lifetime of silliness. Yeah. But it takes getting out on a range. It takes coming to understand these ideas and why guns are important. And you know what? If they never touch a gun again, that's their choice. Yep. But it's also each of us as a choice, as a free individual to decide what level of expertise we want to attain and to maintain a free society. There has got to be enough of us who are well-trained and Mm well-armed. That is just the historical reality. Yeah. I I like what you shared there as far as they uh, feel empowered. You know, once they see what, what it actually is, what it actually does as far as, you know, the firearm and they realize that they can control it and that they are the one that's in control and that and what and the potential that that means as far as what they can do with it then that individual is empowered and so i'd like to link this kind of back to what's at the core of our discussion here today second amendment is all about empowerment and you know you you gave a very uh, simple you know small example of an individual being empowered and and I don't I, I, like that's a very I I really think it's like it goes deep deeper than that as far as like there's this I think there's something within each of us that we connect with that once we see that potential the reason we are empowered I I feel is because we understand somewhere uh, without realizing it in probably most cases what that means and what that means is that i am you know how do i how do i phrase it i am responsible for myself like i yes. can take charge of my life i'm not at the will of someone else you know what i mean like do you know there's a really good example of that have have you ever seen the there's been some tv specials about the la riots and how the korean community came together and defended their businesses. And yes. it's a it, so if anybody ever has a chance to study that, <clears throat> these these immigrant communities who understood what it meant to be an American, they armed themselves and they defended their own businesses when the police evacuated and left it to rioting and looting. And it's it is a fantastic example of being an American. Yeah. And I, you know, up here we're we're getting ready for the solar eclipse. There's they they tell us hundreds of thousands of people are going to come upon us and come and watch. You're you're sun. right where supposedly it's going to be uh like the best the viewing best. of the whole thing. Cuz <laughs> right. we're high elevation, little cloud cover, and then it'll it'll get cloudy that day. It'll be hilarious. But um anyway, so we're getting ready for this huge onslaught of people and people bring problems. And just as a natural part of our life, I was talking to some other community folks at church. And I said, hey, would you be interested in helping me patrol a little bit? And they're like, sure, let's do it. And we know each other. We've trained together. We understand each other and what we're trying to do. And we will have our own little patrol. And we'll probably coordinate it with the sheriff's office. And because that's what we do in our community. And that we have lost that as a people. It's my responsibility to protect my property. It's my responsibility to protect my family. And guess what? I can get a couple of neighbors and we can go on shifts 
And we can really, when it's necessary, we can make sure these things are being done. We can have radios, yeah. we can communicate. That's not weird. That's just being responsible. So I remembered the word that I was trying to come up with a minute ago that I think describes it. I, I think this describes it the best. Accountable or accountability. Meaning that it's that, that, that reason I think we are empowered by the power of the gun is because you then realize you make this this connection that I am accountable for myself, not somebody else, not the government, not the local police department or sheriff's office. I at, at the very core of everything that matters in life, I am accountable for me and or my family. Which includes my safety, my family's safety. And me holding on to my property, which is the fruit of my labor. Yes. Those are, are all justly and rightly individual responsibilities that we have delegated to the state through a sheriff's office and things like that. But when we delegate that right and responsibility, it does not leave us. That is just an assistance to us. And yep. we still retain that full right and responsibility. Yeah. I hope this is being heard in California because you guys got some issues. <laughs> I know well, you're aware of them, but and like Oregon and some of these places, you see that guy that that brandished in self defense. I think it was in Portland. He was a, a news um, reporter. They uh, now he's in jail. Uh, he was a uh, independent or freelance. That's that's the word freelancer. Uh, video vi- uh, freelance vid- videographer. Uh, y- yes, he is. <laughs> in jail and you know he might have made some mistakes but yeah but he's this is the this is the difference is we can all make mistakes you do not lose your freedom when you make a mistake and it i mean the the, the idea that he is in jail to me is just ridiculous yeah. ridiculous and it, it's because of where he was if he did that in my town we <laughs> would be asking him why he didn't shoot <laughs> That's, you know, I mean, it's, it's, probably- it depends on who the jury of your peers are and who the prosecutor right. is. And it's because we are not an educated populace. Yeah. There's definitely some truth, you know, to what you said there, uh, depending on where you are, the law definitely changes. And uh, because, I mean, yes, uh, your jury uh, in today's world, depending on where you are, might be made up of people that, that get it, people that understand uh, these rights, these natural human rights, basic human rights, uh, or it might be made up of people that, you know, if, if you look at the natural, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to deviate here a little bit. I was thinking about John Locke again, and, you know, a lot of the, the thoughts and, and theories that he presented, and we saw a lot of that carry over into the 18th and even into the early 19th centuries. And then what, then what did we see come along? We see... Marx, Karl Marx, <laughs> bless his heart. He shows up and we begin stripping away this basic human right concept uh, where individual rights are so key to the security and establishment of a civil and free society to a society where we give up all that freedom for the security 
And of course, you know, all the crap that comes along with that. That is actually a myth as well. I mean, that security is a myth. Ask all the millions of people who died under communism. Exactly. the, The idea, one of the key ideas was that you replace individual rights with social or collective rights. You replace individual rights with the rights of a state, which don't exist. They just, they don't. You have, they have to create them out of fiction. Yeah. And then you have the replacing of individual responsibility with the responsibility of the state or the collective responsibility. And it is not consistent with our legal foundations, with our religious foundations, with who we are as Americans. And it, boy, that, okay, I better <laughs> hold up there for just a minute. <laughs> I can get into socialism and how oh, it's yeah. just become a part of everything we do in this country. And a lot of it, I think, stems back to education and what we did to our educational system. We socialized it in the mid-1800s, and it ruined us. Mm. Yeah, well, in your introdu- introduction, I think you kind of made it quite clear that you've been involved uh, very intimately in the creation of uh, uh, charter schools and other uh, types of schools. Uh, you might understand a thing or two about education. and But uh, real quick, um, before we stray too much from, from where we were, I really like some of what you, know, you were saying there uh, and, and kind of what we're getting at is the point here. Speaking to this idea of... of socialism um, and replacement of individual rights with social rights or, or whatever it is. Um, I was just thinking, you know, I think it's, it's, it's the human life has an intrinsic worth, right? Like you are worth something. I believe I am worth something like people are worth something. What exactly, what exactly that, that something is, I don't know, but I know it's, it's something and I know it's a lot. Like every life is worth a lot and a government is not, does not have inherent, you know, intrinsic value, right? Does that make sense? Well, I, I don't think it has intrinsic value. It has the value of the trust of, that the people put into it. So the government sure. in a free society, the government is there to protect the rights of the people. And as far as the government does that, it has value. Right. Well, If the government does not do that, then it no longer has value, and it's the right and responsibility of the people to replace it, which is the brilliance of our system because we could replace it by voting Yeah. with an informed – educated vote. Yeah. And, but then the founders even had a fallback from there. They said, look, we're going to, we're going to make sure the people have the power both in the vote and by possession of the military arms. Yeah. And it was a double decker protection and I'm grateful for it. They did a good job. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at here though, is that like when we talk about, someone or something having rights, like a a thing in my opinion does not have rights because like a thing is just a thing, you know, a person, a a human has basic human rights. And I, I I guess I'm just trying to make some differentiation and we're getting very, you know, uh, uh, philosophical here today, but just that the difference between a person and and a government, um, and I recognize that a government, you know, is put into place, uh, 
by people uh, and that it may have some value because of what people put into that and what that government represents and what it protects. But by itself, it, it, it isn't anything. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything without the people, you know, making up said government or what the people put into that. So my point is, is that human beings have a basic, you know, intrinsic worth and value, but a government by itself is not necessarily. And, and therefore, like when we start talking about how a government gives us our rights, which we hear that rhetoric all the time in, in this day and age, that is so far from the truth because it's, it doesn't begin in the government or with the government. It begins well, and, yeah, in the people. And first of all, the government doesn't have any rights. It never has. It, it is a exactly. thing. It is an idea. Ideas do not possess rights. So this was an issue for me when I was in the Marine Corps. I, we were in the age of UN engagements. And so I did some studying about the difference between our Bill of Rights and the UN Declaration of Rights. So in our Bill of Rights, it respects the, facts, the fact that every individual has rights given by nature or nature's God. In the UN Declaration of Rights, they describe these rights that you supposedly have, but only if you exercise them in concert with or in agreement with the purposes of the United Nations. <laughs> and it is very clear in that document that they are benevolently bestowed upon you by the government and can be taken back if you misuse them. That's not a free people, folks. That is not freedom. Freedom is every individual possesses those rights. And the only way that government has any legitimacy is if its purpose is to protect and respect those rights. Mm. And wow, we have just lost our way as a people. Yeah. Yep. So true. So I guess where I was going and of course where you're going as well. Sorry if I keep taking no. you where you're not going. No, no. <laughs> I do that on occasion. No, you you're setting it up perfectly I think to kind of answer uh this last sort of question if you will. Uh and, and you you actually you know provided this in a little bit of an outline that you sent my way as we were preparing this podcast for today. And uh, the question here that you ask is does the second amendment give us the right to keep and bear arms? What's the answer, Steve? Well, I love to ask that one in my class because they all look at me funny. It's after a longer conversation about the divine right of kings and John Locke. And I say, well, does the Second Amendment give you the right to bear arms? And there's usually two or three people that will raise their hand and say yes. And then some other students will correct them. So the purpose and the wording of the Second Amendment does not grant anyone a right it recognizes and protects the pre-existing right of each individual. And that's part of its brilliance. It, it does not give us the right to bear arms. Right. And so where does that right come from? That right under our legal system, under the philosophy that led to what we have in the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution, that right is ours by gift of nature or nature's God, however you want to look at it. That right exists in us by virtue of existing in nature. Just yeah. as, by the way, every other creature in nature has the right of self-defense. 
and the right to use whatever instrumentality around them they choose to use to enforce that right of self-defense. So the, you know, the ability to create tools of defense and utilize them is a natural right. So yeah. both the right of self-defense and the right to create and bear or purchase and bear arms is a natural right. Which is fun, too, because that's when you can talk about the word unalienable or inalienable, meaning that right cannot be made alien. It cannot be separated from you. From the person. It is you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there you go. So I was thinking, you know, and I think we've got to quote the Second Amendment uh, because, one, it it's only appropriate in this in today's discussion and uh, being that uh, by the time you're listening to this tomorrow is Independence Day after all uh, but I think in the way the amendment is worded it makes the case of what you just explained meaning that the the Second Amendment recognizes this right and and so how, how is this worded it says what a well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I think in the way that is worded, it's it's suggesting, like you just explained, that the the, the document, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights recognizes that there is this right of the people. And that it shall not be infringed. If the founding fathers were suggesting that our rights came from this document or that our rights came from the government, it would not word it in this way. It would say, oh, you know, by the way, we give you the right to do yeah, certain things with regard with you know with regard to the, the bearing of arms. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like instead it says, you have this right and it shall not be infringed. And it went through the separation of powers. So it, it just came from a constitution where they agreed that they would not have a standing army. The army could only be funded for two years at a time. And then they talk about the state. And, you know, here is a, here is a, a conglomeration of the states. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought maybe I'd, I'd dropped you. I have a weird internet here. Um, but you know, that, there, there is this collaboration of the states creating a federal union, and there is a separation of powers between the federal, which is you know limited and defined within that document, and then there is the responsibility of the state to defend its people and to have security within the state, and then the people will have the right to keep and bear arms. That not only is that being respected because everybody in that society, even the Tories, Mm. recognized the right to keep and bear arms. That mm. was a, a very British um, issue. Yeah. That, but now we're, we're codifying it in the highest law of the land. It is being protected by the highest law of the land that we both have these separations of military power and we have the right, an absolute, almost absolute right, very similar to the right of, of free speech and freedom of religion that you have the right to keep and bear arms. And boy, have we violated that one numerous times. Indeed we have. So I, uh, 
yeah, we're kind of getting to where we, we ought to wrap this up for today at least. Uh, there's definitely some things we could continue on discussion-wise uh, later and perhaps even a year from now uh, for in preparation of uh, Independence Day 2018. Maybe we'll continue some of this discussion uh, or go into greater detail in a few areas or whatever. But uh, I, I hope this has been valuable to you, our listeners, uh, for of, of the podcast as far as understanding what went into creating the Constitution, uh, well, first the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the the Bill of Rights, and the reasoning and logic behind why some things were done the way they were done. I mean, I it's clear to me in this day and age, there are so many that would have you believe otherwise that uh, the fa- founding father's intent was something completely different than what we're talking about here today. And uh, we we can't, we can't give into that ridiculous logic uh, to uh, what is being, you know, put out there as as a form of brainwashing in our society today, uh, folks. If you enjoyed this today, you know, and even if you uh, agree or disagree with anything we talked about, I would love to hear from you. Uh, please let us know. Uh, whether in the comments of the uh, uh, show notes of today's episode, uh, you can do that. You know, of course, if you're listening to or if you visit our website and find today's episode, episode 135. Uh, you can send us an email at uh, 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 info at concealedcarry.com. Uh, you can comment on our Facebook page or, or whatever. Send us a message that way. I'd love to hear from you as far as your thoughts about the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Second Amendment, uh, the uh, um, the rights that we have as as basic you know human beings. Love to hear your thoughts. Agree or disagree. Uh, I suspect most of you probably agree. But uh, anyway, it's been my pleasure, uh, Doctor Steve Adams, to uh, to talk with you about this today. It's it's been a pleasure and very enjoyable for me as well. And if if any of your listeners uh, listeners would like to get a hold of me, they can follow the same process, and I'll make sure you have my contact information so they can get a hold of me. Absolutely. So let's get on now to, as it is tradition on the podcast, uh, every every time we have uh, one of these. Now, now, granted, this episode is a little bit out of order because uh, typically we do uh, uh, Mondays is a news-focused episode where we feature our news from around the country, uh, justified uh, shooting stories. And Wednesdays are usually reserved for a, you know, more in-depth topic. Uh, this week is going to be a little bit reversed where, you know, this episode is releasing on Monday, July 3rd. And on Wednesday, we'll do a, uh, a kind of a, a news, you know, episode. And so a little bit reversed from the normal schedule of things. But uh, uh, so for today's episode, we're doing our picks of the week. And I'll go ahead and go first since uh, this is your first time on. Uh, and uh, my pick this week is actually... Uh, <laughs> I think I've actually made this a pick already once before, but I couldn't help myself from doing it again. Uh, I think it's worthy of being my pick two times. Uh, And uh, the reason it is my pick today is because I just finished reading, or actually I was listening, it was an audio book. For whatever reason, it took me a little while to get through it. But this book is called Legend, and it is written by the author Eric Blem. And uh, this is the story about... Uh, Sergeant uh, Roy Benavides, who fought <laughs> bravely in a uh, brutal battle in the Vietnam War. 
and it took some some time. Uh, gee, uh, fifteen you, you know years or so before he really received the recognition that he deserved. Meaning that he was he was uh, uh, he received the Medal of Honor because of his actions uh, during this battle. But basically, Roy Benavides voluntarily he volunteered to hop on a chopper uh, that was going back into uh, this this skirmish um, so that he could help. He didn't have to. He was not asked to do this. He was not told by a superior to to, to go there. Uh, he was he was monitoring things on a radio, and he went, hmm, I need to go help. And he, at the last possible minute, jumped on one of the last helicopters that went in. Uh, they could not land the helicopter because uh, the, the gunfire was too intense. He said, just get me close, and he jumped. You know, I don't... 15, 20 feet high. I don't, I, I don't remember exactly how high it said it was, but it was, it was pretty high. He jumps out of the helicopter to the ground and sprints to where our soldiers were pinned down. And they were, you know, many, a couple of them were dead already. Uh, many of them were wounded severely. Uh, they were getting close to just being overrun. And he gets there. He organizes them. Uh, he administers uh, medical aid. He uh, And in the process, by the way, as soon as he hits the ground, he's wounded. Uh, by, a, I think, a bullet through his leg. A few seconds later, as he's running to get to where uh, his buddies are, he's wounded by a shrapnel from a rocket-propelled grenade. Uh, a few you know, moments later, he's wounded by another bullet. Uh, he is shot again through the chest. Uh, he is bayoneted by a, a North Vietnamese soldier that sneaks up on him at one point. Uh, he personally uh, is the result, or he... he because of him, eight lives are saved. Eight men come back that otherwise would not have. And the story is a remarkable one. You have got to read it. You have got to go or listen to it. I listened to the audiobook version. It's called Legend by Eric Blem. Go read it. I thought this was appropriate for, you know, considering that I'm honoring and thinking of my rights as an American and the beauty, you know, that it is that we even have a, a thing called Independence Day. And so I honor him and soldiers like him and all of our men and women in uniform that have in some form or way sacrificed uh, for this country and for the rights and freedoms that we enjoy. Uh, But this is a phenomenal story. Uh, I would just encourage you to go check it out. Legend by Eric Blum. So how about you, Dr. Adams? Uh, What's your pick this week? Well, now I feel bad for picking mine because yours is awesome. It actually has a purpose. Mine was just something I thought of when you mentioned it to me is my my personal favorite gun for self-defense, which is a magazine-fed 12-gauge. <laughs> and nice. they have kind of gotten some bad names for different things, but I've got an old Sega 12-gauge that is fantastic. I uh, had a Navy SEAL friend of mine in Florida. I had finally quit teaching in the classroom and was making a little money and asked him what gun I should buy for one against many defense. And he said, a Sega 12 gauge. And I said, well, what if I had enough money? You know, what if I had a couple thousand dollars? And he says, well, then buy four Sega 12 gauges. <laughs> so he and I bought them and we we kind of customized them. And I, I just love the idea of, so in a, in a, in a double-aught buck, three-inch shell, you've got 16, they're about nine millimeter, a little less than nine millimeter pellets. And you can shoot 16 of those 
at a time and you can do about 10 of them in about two seconds. So you're throwing out 160 bullets in a nice pattern, controlled pattern in two seconds. And then the most beautiful thing is you just put another magazine in and you get 10 more. <laughs> you don't have to fumble with one shell here, one shell there, double quick loading here. I, I took it to a gun, uh, a self-defense shotgun school and a couple of guys with you know, a couple thousand dollars into their Benelli's were right next to me. And um, they were kind of mocking my pressed metal rattly contraption <laughs> until we did a night shoot where they each, you know, we, they, they'd flash a laser on a target and we'd all shoot it. And so we all shot about the same. I shot 10, they shot night six. And then I reloaded a magazine and shot 10 buck shots onto a steel plate in the dark with all that light and flash and noise while everybody else was reloading. <laughs> and then they finally all got the point that if that had been a gunfight, that magazine fed bugger would have done it. <laughs> would have done a sweet job on it. So anyway, that's just one of my personal favorites. And I guess that's also a 4th of July thing. I, I am a big fan of 12 gauges. I think they're beautiful self-defense instruments. Absolutely. And those Segas are, uh, they're amazing as far as the kind of fire, firepower you have in a pretty simple and basic package. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of of the opinion that if you've got a shotgun for self-defense, uh, you're most likely shooting it until it's dry. And then hopefully you've got a pistol or a carbine that you can transition to because by the time you can reload that sucker, it's, you know, it's going to take you too long. So, uh, the Segas with the magazine swap, I mean, you can swap out the mag just as fast as you can swap out the mag in a, uh, you know, AR 15, or in some cases for some of you, you know, swapping out a mag and a pistol, probably a little bit faster, still the pistol, but you know what I mean? So, Really cool. Nice pick. Yeah, I'm, I love love pistols, but boy, 12 gauges are just fun. Yeah. Nice. Well, there you have it, folks. You've, you've heard our picks. Uh, you heard hopefully some really uh, interesting and valuable discussion on our rights as Americans, uh, where a lot of that you know, came from, at least as far as the, the, the thinking part behind it. And uh, we are so blessed to live where we do. I really sincerely hope all of you will enjoy your Independence Day, uh, enjoy this holiday, and do so safely. And preferably without starting any fires or anything, okay? Whether that be with fireworks or with your guns. I mean, too often anymore during these hot months, hot summer months, we are seeing stories where uh, you know, a fire has started that turns into, you know, a multi, you know, tens of thousands of acres uh, fire that started because somebody was being dumb and shooting tracers, you know, where they shouldn't have been. Or I'm not saying you can't do it. You just, you, you got to do it smartly and safely in appropriate environments. And, you know, frankly, July and August, uh, if you've got dry grass or weeds or whatever, it's not really a responsible uh, thing to do as far as you know, using tracers or even sometimes just being a little crazy with the guns and uh, maybe you kick up some sparks somehow and you start a fire. So anyway, I hope that you'll have fun. Metal, tannerite, all sorts of yeah. things you can do. Right, right. So have Which fun. are all fun. <laughs> <laughs> And in many places, most places are legal to do, but understand the consequences. And one, you can be sued uh, or even charged in some cases and have hefty, hefty fines uh, and have your life changed forever and other people's lives where loss of property or life has occurred because of irresponsible 
uh, shooting. So I hope that you'll have fun. I hope that you'll get out and shoot. I just hope that you'll do it responsibly. And also the same would be true with those, with those fireworks. I love fireworks. So let's just be responsible and have fun. Sound good? I love it. All right. I love it. It's a beautiful holiday. And thank you for allowing me to be on your program and share with your listeners this little piece of of the country I love. Absolutely. Well, and it was my honor, my pleasure to have you. And so with that, we're going to sign off here from the Concealed Carry Podcast. A, a reminder to train right, train often, train safe, so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. We'll catch you next time. reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.